So welcome to the GUT Podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, UK, and current Visiting Research Fellow at the National Cancer Institute in the USA. In my capacity as Education Editor, I'm hosting this podcast today. This month, we're discussing the current Editor's Choice Manuscript entitled XIAP Variants in Male Crohn's Disease. This is presented by Dr. Sebastian Z and Dr. Andre Frank and their teams from the University Medical Centre and Institute of Clinical Molecular Biology, Christian Albrechts University, Kiel in Germany. I'm delighted to be joined today by these two senior authors of the paper, so welcome to the podcast. So the pathogenesis of inflammatory bowel disease is complex. It involves multifactorial processes and is not precisely understood. There is certainly a genetic susceptibility, and these have primarily been identified by large sample number GWAS consortia studies. So to start off the discussion, can you bring us up to date with what is known of the genetic susceptibility for IBD? Yes, hi, this is Andre Franke speaking. So... Yeah, inflammatory bowel diseases are in most cases actually complex and in particular polygenic diseases, which means uh, numerous disease loci and susceptibility genes have been implicated in disease etiology. And um, the latest study that has been published um, revealed actually 163 different loci in the genome which play a role in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, which are both the main subtypes of inflammatory bowel disease. And what we found out in this consortial effort was also that uh, most of these disease genes, they actually overlap between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, which reflects also the clinical similarity. And uh, there are more studies now on the way which are characterizing these loci because we don't know yet in many instances what are the genes. Is there only one gene per locus? Are there several? And we're also um, trying, of course, to identify more loci. And I'm aware that there are at least 40 more disease loci that will be published in the near future. So there are several issues to consider when translating the GWAS-identified gene associations to functional impact. Can you describe these for us and explain why in this paper you chose to pursue a rare disease phenotype to investigate new gene associations? Hello, this is Sebastian Zysig from the Department of Medicine at Yale University. So the the approach that we took uh, was uh, quite different from that just described by Dr. Franke uh, from a GWAS approach. And in this case, we we started from a very different angle, um, having the understanding that IBD and Crohn's disease is one of its forms typically manifests in, in young adults in in a, in a rather polygenic disease. We thought we would start from the other um, end of the of the spectrum and start with patients that have a very early onset um, form of disease. In the particular case, we chose a child with very early onset Crohn's disease manifesting within the first year of life. Um, and we did this in the belief that, that such an unusual early manifestation of disease would have a rather strong genetic um, basis, uh, much stronger than in an adult with IBD. And then this uh, approach was not unprecedented, of course. Uh, similar strategies had been pursued in the past, 
for many Mendelian diseases, uh, including uh, what we typically call monogenic forms of IBD, and most notably, of course, um, in, in the case of the identification of mutations, for example, in the IL-10 pathway in IBD. So you studied the gene encoding XIAP or X-linked inhibitor of apoptosis protein with regard to chronic intestinal inflammation. Why did you identify this gene in particular to investigate in the context of IBD? So we started off with a child here in the pediatric unit with severe Crohn's disease and performed an exome sequencing um, in this child. Um, and so we typically, we did this for many different families, cases of early onset IBD, cases of familial IBD. And general difficulty with this approach of exome sequencing is, is that no matter how strict you filter, there are always several potential candidate variants left that may um, cause disease or at least contribute to disease. And so in this case, we performed an exome sequencing and again had several candidates left, but we're fortunate to have uh, pieces of evidence that helped us there. Uh, first, there was a phenotypically similar case of very early onset Crohn's disease published by the group of David Dimmock at that time in which exome sequencing had revealed a, a fairly similar mutation in XIP. Uh, and secondly, XIP mutations are or were at that point known to provide the genetic basis for primary immunodeficiency, which is called X-linked lymphoproliferative syndrome type 2. And comprehensive studies in these patients had actually shown that a number of these patients suffer from intestinal inflammation, clearly pointing towards at least a potential involvement of XIP in the pathogenesis of Crohn's disease. So as you said, your paper begins with exome sequencing from a single infant. Um, what were the main outcomes from this part of the study? Actually, for exome sequencing, we made use of a very novel high-throughput technology, which is termed next-generation sequencing. And using this technology, it's nowadays possible to sequence an entire genome for only a few thousand dollars. And here we did not concentrate on the whole genome because the analyses are more tedious and we had the hypothesis that the defect here in the child because of this severe disease must be located somewhere in the coding region, meaning that a specific gene is impaired and so we targeted all exons in the human genome using commercially available baits. So we fished out these exonic sequences and then we sequenced them using these new machines. Then we generated, in principle, the whole exonic uh, sequence space here. And so we had a lower complexity of the data here. Uh, we're looking only at around 30 to 40 megabases here compared to a six gigabase uh, diploid genome. And this makes the subsequent bioinformatic analyses, of course, a lot easier. And it really paid off also in this case. So you then went on to investigate the functional impact of the XIAP variant with particular focus on the adaptive immune response. Does this variant lead to alterations in immune cell subsets? 
So we're actually um, quite surprised to find um, rather little evidence of uh, altered adaptive and in large parts also uh, innate immunity in this patient or in these patients. We performed a, a phenotypic analysis of peripheral blood immune populations uh, in this patient and found no obvious striking alterations in the cellular composition in peripheral blood. We then went on to take a, a closer look at adaptive immunity, um, particularly T-cells, but again found that, that cytokine secretion or the activation of T-cells was unaltered. We also took a look at innate immune functions, such as inflammasome activation, IL-1 beta secretion, caspase-1 activation, and again found little evidence of an alteration there. And so in the end, after a, a, a fairly comprehensive immunological phenotyping and functional analysis in this patient who were left with a rather selective uh, and specific but also very severe defect in microbial recognition by a NOT2. Okay, and um, XIAP has previously been shown to be involved in NOD2-mediated increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines via um, NF-kappa B signaling. So can you explain why this is relevant to IBD and what you found when you assessed this particular pathway in your patient? The variants in, in NOD2, genetic variants in, in NOD2, were among the first uh, genetic alterations uh, described in, in Crohn's disease, and they still explain a considerable, very large portion of the genetic risk in, in IBD, with homozygous variants in this gene being associated with an odds ratio of, of 20 to 40 for the development of Crohn's disease. Uh, as such, it was intriguing to see that some of the XIP variants we discovered were indeed associated with a complete loss of NOT2 function and a complete loss of um, NOT2 and NF-kappa B-dependent induction of cytokines such as IL-6 and, and IL-8, similar to what others had been reported at the same time. And um, it's worthy to note, I think in this context, that the functional NOT2 defects uh, had previously been described in, in CD patients in the absence of genetic alterations in the NOT2 gene. We believe that what we discovered, um, namely mutations in IXIP, may at least partially contribute to this observation of a functional NOT2 defect in the absence of NOT mutations. We went on then in our study and could indeed demonstrate that when we lentivirally reconstitute IXIP in primary dendritic cells of Crohn's disease patients carrying these XIP mutations, that we can restore NOT2 function, which indeed confirms that NOT2 defect is in these cases the consequence of a dysfunctional XIP protein. Whether intestinal inflammation um, itself in these patients is indeed the sole consequence of NOT2 dysfunction remains unclear at this point. Uh, several recent studies have demonstrated that XIP can regulate T cell function, can regulate inflammasome activation, um, and the, certainly cell death, uh, all of which may contribute to the pathogenesis of intestinal inflammation in these patients. And so XIP may regulate disease susceptibility through a variety of pathways, but very likely including NOT2. Well, you then expanded your search for XIAP variants in a large cohort of IBD patients and controls. Tell us about this and what you found. Looking at a single case is, of course, interesting, and we were able to show that the candidate mutation that we found 
is having a, a functional impact on here. The question is, of course, um, are there more patients carrying mutations in the XIAP gene? And for this particular question, we sequence the whole XIAP gene uh, using classical Sanger technology, and uh, we sequence all exons here in 275 more pediatric patients. The median age here was uh, 13 years. The age of onset here was between 1 and 16 years of age. And um, to compare this cohort, we also looked at an adult onset IBD cohort. Here the age of onset was uh, above 17 years. And here we even sequence more than a thousand uh, different patients. And uh, we found in four more pediatric onset, early onset patients, we found uh, XIAP defects. And this is, of course, interesting. We calculated by that that uh, mutations in this gene can explain maybe around 4% of early onset IBD. However, more studies are needed by other centers which look at yeah, even maybe larger pediatric onset IBD cohorts to really show what the exact frequency estimate here is for XIAP uh, gene defects. So carriage of the XIAP variants, for example, W323X appears to be associated with severe disease phenotype from the specific case examples you give in the paper. So tell us more about this and the functional impact of this mutation. Well, this was indeed a remarkable, I would say. Um, the, the Sanger sequencing of XIAP revealed a truncating nonsense mutation in XIAP in a patient who had been diagnosed in the 60s, in the 1960s, with Crohn's disease and who had since suffered from a very severe form of stricturing and fistulizing Crohn's disease and had undergone repeated multiple abdominal surgeries. And remarkably, all attempts to introduce uh, azathioprine or infliximab uh, in this patient resulted in severe recurrent or persistent respiratory infections, the ones even required um, mechanical ventilation. Most interestingly, perhaps the, the patient ultimately at an age of just 54 died from a pneumonia while being hospitalized for intestinal surgery. And, and so I think this is noteworthy for several reasons of First, we know that XIP mutations are associated with both Crohn's disease as well as primary immunodeficiency. And this particular patient, I think, well illustrates the presence of immunodeficiency in combination with intestinal inflammation. And these observations may, in fact, not be specific to Crohn's patients carrying XIP mutations, but may, in fact, apply to a rather considerable proportion of CD patients in whom intestinal inflammation results perhaps from a primary immunodeficiency rather than from a primary exaggeration in the immune response, uh, which is a concept you know, proposed um, many years ago by people like Tony Siegel and others. And secondly, I think this particular uh, case, of course, raised the question of the value of exome sequencing in clinical practice. Uh, we had to ask ourselves, would we have treated this patient differently if we had known that he had a mutation in XIP? Uh, would we have considered an allogeneic stem cell transplantation? And, um, of course, how many of these cases 
are we missing in daily clinical practice, uh, which we just label as severe Crohn's disease um, because we don't have uh, information on the genome. So you mentioned earlier that the XIAP mutations may account for around 4% of the IBD population, um, but do they impact on extraintestinal disease phenotypes? You mentioned systemic immunosuppression there, but are there any other disease phenotypes that are particularly associated with these mutations? The question of, of how often these variants occur in the, in the general IBD population is a, is a question that we that we uh, do not have an answer yet. Um, as uh, Dr. Franke has mentioned, um, we performed an exome sequencing in, uh, we performed Sanger sequencing rather in a large cohort of adult and uh, patients with Crohn's disease and children with IBD. Um, and in fact, in this, in this uh, population of children, we found that uh, there was a, about 4% of them, 4% of the male patients with Crohn's disease carried variants in the XIP, suggesting that within this subset of patients, um, this, uh, there may be a considerable portion of them having IBD due to XIP mutations. Now, the question is, uh, can you easily identify them by their uh, syndrome, by their combination of symptoms? Um, and we saw some commonalities. Um, the majority of patients had an involvement of the small intestine as well as the large intestine and had stricturing and fistulizing disease. Um, and some of them uh, did have extraintestinal uh, disease and other signs of autoimmunity or of, or of immunodeficiency, but there was not a clear picture that emerged in, in terms of a clear clinical syndrome um, with, uh, by which the, these patients could be easily recognized. So what is the inheritance pattern of XIAP mutations and the penetrance of disease phenotype in carriers? So when we started off with the study, of course, we did not really know what is uh, the gene of relevance here and what is the inheritance pattern. Uh, we speculated because both parents were healthy and did not show any IBD symptoms that there may be a recessive uh, variant here. Uh, so we were looking in the child then for homozygous carrier states of mutations, and we also inspected compound heterozygosity. If you then apply the general filters, you filter away all the variants that are common in the population and where you assume they don't have any impact. We were still left with some interesting candidates, but these were ruled out then by other analyses. Now, in the case of XIIP, Coming back to this, we actually found out here when checking for de novo mutations, meaning mutations that are not present in the parents but which appear in the child, meaning they somehow yeah, arose during embryogenesis, we found actually a very nice uh, mutation in the XIP gene here, which is on the X chromosome. So um, in the case of males, you only have one X chromosome. So it's sufficient that one uh, chromosomal strand carries the mutation and you have the disease. So it's an X chromosomal inheritance pattern. So far, to my knowledge, only uh, male patients have been identified. Uh, in terms of the penetrance, we mentioned before that uh, we assume among the pediatric male patients, the frequency is around 4%. But of course, 
each and every individual mutation that we identify needs to be studied functionally by people like Dr. Seisig to really see if this also reveals an impaired uh, protein or any other has any other effect uh, of interest here. In silico, we can only predict this mutation may have an effect, and we assume, because the likelihood is high, that uh, having the same disease and also a same novel variant that no one has found before, that this cannot happen by random, just by coincidence, that these are really causative variants. Uh, however, there are such things, of course, as genetic modifiers. So, in, as we learned, uh, it's not only uh, early onset IBD that you get, but uh, there are also other symptoms associated with CEP defects. So, there are these modifiers, and it's really hard to uh, say how high the penetrance is here, in particular for uh, IBD. Uh, there is no really good pattern yet that we can really predict if this domain of the protein is uh, affected by a mutation that you will get this that you will have these symptoms and um, or IBD for example so in terms of the penetrance is a high penetrance but i cannot name you any number here Okay, well, that follows on to our next question, which is, do you think that the loss of functional protein alone is sufficient to precipitate IBD? Or are there other factors, such as these modifiers that you described, that are involved in the disease outcome of the mutation? Yeah, that gets back to the, to the question that Dr. Franke just addressed. And I think what we, what we know in terms of the, of the penetrance is that there are some families where we have seven or eight family members which share the same mutation and of which only a fraction of them indeed um, during lifetime uh, ever develops intestinal inflammation. So we, I think we have a clear understanding that the penetrance is, um, is nowhere close to 100%, but probably rather in the region of like 10 to 30%. And it's clear from that that these mutations are very likely not sufficient to elicit intestinal inflammation. This uh, is indeed in, in accordance with the observation that mice deficient in XIP do not develop spontaneous intestinal inflammation. Um, and it's moreover uh, reminiscent of the vast majority of, of diseases that we often um, mislabel in a way as Mendelian or monogenic variants of IBD, which show a rather low penetrance of intestinal inflammation. And this uh, clearly, I think, suggests the presence of modifiers, as, as Dr. Franke just mentioned. Um, and we don't know yet whether those are genetic modifiers or environmental modifiers or even a, a combination of both. I think the best uh, characterized exception to this rule of incomplete penetrance or mutations in the IL-10 and IL-10 receptor pathway, which in these cases almost invariably lead to the onset of intestinal inflammation within the first year of life. But even in these cases, uh, studies in mice have shown that you still require the intestinal microbiota as a trigger for intestinal inflammation. So even in these cases, there's apparently at least the presence of the microbiota required as an environmental factor to trigger intestinal inflammation. What it is in, in, in the case of XIP that leads to precipitation of disease, whether it is a bacterial infection, a viral infection, um, a completely different environmental factor, or a genetic, another genetic alteration 
is unclear at the moment, but is of course critical to identify to better um, understand why some people get uh, sick and others just don't. So finally, um, you briefly mentioned when we discussed the case uh, history earlier on that these patients often don't respond to currently available immunosuppressive therapies. Uh, do you think there are other treatment strategies that may be available for this particular patient cohort? Well, to take a little bit of a, of a detour, I think that we've, we've clearly learned in the past years that exome sequencing can uncover uh, cases of, of mono or oligogenic IBD and indeed provide pathways to what we think could be personalized medical treatment. Um, as such, we and others uh, recently reported um, a form of monogenic Crohn's disease that is elicited by a mutation in a co-inhibitory protein, CTLA-4, um, indeed, uh, published uh, in gut. Um, and, and in this particular case, CTLA-4 fusion proteins are available in the clinic, they're clinically approved, and it's currently under investigation whether they, in these cases, offer a strategy for personalized medicine um, in, in, in the treatment of Crohn's disease. Now, in the case of mutations in XIP, our treatment options are currently rather limited. It is still recommended to evaluate the available drug regimens for Crohn's disease. Um, and um, as an ultimate, um, or if conventional treatment fails, conventional treatment meaning immunosuppression or biologicals, then allogeneic stem cell transplantation can be offered um, as a treatment option. It's... Um, of what we've learned so far from the limited number of published cases of stem cell transplantation in um, patients harboring XIP mutation, it seems to cure IBD, which points towards a defect within the hematopoietic compartment, and it prevents X-linked lymphoproliferative syndrome uh, type 2 in these patients as well. In other words, um, the often fatal form of immunodeficiency that may later develop in these patients. So it cures, but it comes um, with, um, with a number of side effects, and it was a recent international study published by Rebecca Marsh and others suggesting that there's a considerable rate of severe uh, and, in, in, the, in fact, fatal complications associated with stem cell transplantation in the case of patients carrying XIP mutations so uh, a warning flag had been raised in this regard, and so it's important to keep in mind that um, conventional treatment should typically be tested first. Um, allogeneic stem cell transplantation would be um, a backup strategy. Now, uh, lastly, I think in, a, in the long run, a gene therapy seems the way to go for the, um, all monogenic forms of IBD, which result from hematopoietic defects. In other words, targeting of the affected gene within the relevant immune cell um, um, compartment or immune cell population, which will be personalized, will be right on target, and um, may have um, uh, quite little side effects, but that's the future. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Sebastian Zizek and Dr. Andre Franke for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.